Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Author of Your Screenplay Sucks, 100 Ways to Make It Great, William M. Akers, a WGA Lifetime member, has written for studios, independent producers, and network television. He's had three feature films produced from his screenplays and his novels. Mrs. Rabinbach's Way was traditionally published. He taught filmmaking and screenwriting at Vanderbilt University and created Belmont University's Motion Pictures Department, a variety top 30 film school. Akers consults with screenwriting clients around the world. You can find his website at yourscreenplaysucks.com. And Carol, I understand that William Akers uses Michael Weezy publishers just like you do. Yes, Claire. Uh, Michael Weezy is a great guy, and we all love him, and we love working with him, and he has top books for filmmakers. So thank you, William, for joining us. Listen, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Sure, we'll have some fun today because we want to learn as much from you as possible on writing excellent screenplays. So I'm going to start with your introduction in your brilliant book, Your Screenplay Sucks, 100 Ways to Make It Great. You say that you got the idea for this book while you were criticizing screenplays. So tell us about this. So I've been giving people notes professionally for 20 years on their scripts and then also teaching at the university level for uh, even longer. And I found that all my writers, whether they were clients or students, they made the same mistakes and mistakes that could stop a reader from reading. And so I envisioned the book as a checklist. I thought, okay, we'll do a checklist for, um, for these people, and then you do these things, and then you won't stop the reader from reading. I had uh, been invited to speak at UNLV in Las Vegas, and I'm, I'm big on handouts. I thought, well, I can't speak without a handout. And so I put together a bunch of stuff, and when I went out there, my handout was 100 pages long. And I thought, oh, <laughs> this will be a, this can be a, a book. book. <laughs> yeah, I got, and I got very lucky. I mean, one, one of the things is you need to be well prepared so when luck strikes, you're ready. And I was at a teaching conference in Chicago, and I um, was coming down to get to the train, to eat breakfast before the train to the plane, and Blake Snyder was there. And the night before, I'd read Save the Cat, and I sat down with him, and I said, said, your book is fantastic. Let's talk. And so when I told him my idea for a book, he said, oh, I can get that published. And so that's how I ran it. I met Michael Weezy. It was just by happenstance, but I was ready. Oh, my gosh. And you were ready. That's the key, isn't it? Uh, but Blake Snyder, I just adore him. Uh, I really love his book and I, uh, the the first one, Save the Cat. And then you can buy the audio, which I uh, you can download now. But there's so much to learn, and uh, and he presents it quite well. Yeah, he even though Save the Cat gone. Strikes Back, which is is phenomenally great. I mean, that's a superb book, also. 
and it carries everything that he talked about in way, way more depth. I, I, both of them are great. I miss him a lot. I haven't. He was wonderful. I didn't try that yet. I will. But I I have to get back to your book well, because please. this is brilliant. It's brilliant. I love Thank the way. You. I mean, your um, subtitles, I guess you call them, in between your acts, because your mm-hmm. book is broken into their, into acts, uh, act one, two, and three. But the, these are reminders. I mean, you've got... Um, you're worried about structure when you came up with your story and you don't have enough tension, you have no time pressure, you didn't give the reader enough emotion. These are important points, and and you will find these, oh, well, 50% of them in the first draft of any script. So mm-hmm. well done, William. Thank you. This is great. Um, well, here's what goes on. Uh, is that when when you uh, are in the uh, funding world like I am, we give film grants. So people come to me and say, uh, "I want uh, I want you to read my script," and I don't. I don't. I don't have the time to do that anymore. But so I say, "Do you have coverage?" And they say, "What's that?" Has someone read your script, a professional person, and give you and given you feedback? And they say, "Oh, yeah." I have a lot of that. Well, who? Maybe I would recognize it. Oh, it was my mother, my brother, the TV repairman. They all loved it. So, um, how do you how do you encourage people to get coverage, to get feedback before they send a script out? Well, the key thing. There's so many key things, but one thing that's very important to keep in mind is if someone who I the, my word for that person is real. Like you're someone who's real and in the business. If you know someone who knows an agent or if you know you have a friend who is an agent or anything like that as a producer, if someone who is real says they'll read your script, you've got you're only gonna get one shot at that person. And so and they'll read it. If they said they'll read it, they'll read it. I mean they may give it to their assistant to read it, but if the assistant likes it, they'll read it. And they can put that script down if it doesn't hold them. And so you have to be able to – you have to respect your own self, your own work, so that when you get an opportunity to give it to somebody real and they're going to read it, you give them the absolute best possible thing you can. And it takes, in my opinion, it, you have to give it to somebody who's better than you are at it to say, hey, you made this mistake, and hey, you made this mistake, and have you thought about doing it this way, and to give you suggestions to make it better. And nobody, including me and everybody else I know, nobody wants to be criticized. Everybody wants to have someone say, oh, I love it. I mean, the, the, my line that I always use is every time I give a script to anyone to read, a producer or anybody, all I want them to say is, I weep at your genius. And you know, so far, nobody's ever said that. But when someone gives you a note, it's always a chance to improve your work. So you want to get as good as you can possibly get and then give it to the person who's going to read it. My novel, I got very, very lucky. I've been working on my novel. It's a children's book about an evil, evil teacher and a sweet little boy. And a friend of mine knew a publisher. And she. this, is, this counts exactly the same way for screenwriting, but this happened to be a novel. He knew the publisher. He knew someone who could say yes. And the ability of getting your piece of material to someone who can say yes is incredibly rare. Anybody can say no, 
but to get to someone who has the decision-making power to make your thing happen is rare. And so I emailed the woman in New York. She's in New York. I emailed her, and I said, hey, I'm this guy in Nashville. I'm working on this script, this this uh, novel. I've got a draft. I'm working on it. When I get it done, I'll send it to you. And she said, oh, that's great. Send it to me whenever you're ready. Well, six months after that, and I was working on it every day, I emailed her, and I said, hey, I'm still not ready. And she said, okay, fine, that's fine. Just whenever you get it done, send it to me. And so six months after that, I finally emailed her, and I said, okay, I'm done. And she said, send it along. I'd love to read it. Well, she bought it three days later. And so I got ready and did the best I could to get my script as ready as – my story as ready as possible, and then it sold. And that's the level of attention you have to pay to something in order to get it sold. And if you are a beginner, you need people who are better than beginners to be giving you notes. So your friends saying they love it isn't going to help you that much. Unless your mother owns a movie studio. Can you hear me? I can, and yes, I completely agree with you. You know, it's difficult to feel like you have um, a reality check, you know? Absolutely. Always have that positivity going on. But then sometimes there is a, you know, a reality check. And can you can you address that a little bit more? You you have to be realistic. Um, you can't write something in a in a, in a in a month or a semester really and expect someone's going to think it's fantastic. You have to take the time to pound it and work it and improve it and ask the magic what if question. What if this happened? What if it were this? And, and keep attacking your own material to make it as good as you can and then give it to your – in my case, I've got a circle of friends who are extremely good writers, and they read my work, and so they give me notes on my work. So if you've got really great people who are professional and very experienced, then you don't need to pay somebody to read your script. But if you don't have someone who's you know phenomenally talented at all that, then you're going to – my feeling is you've got to pay somebody money, which is – um, you know, people don't do this for free. So you have to be no. realistic on what your uh, what your chances are, and you cannot look at your work and go, oh, this is fabulous because I love it. It has to be adored by other people. I mean, you're you're going, I mean, to me in my career, it's always been the producer. The producer's the one who has to walk through fire to get your movie made. And so they've got to really, really, really want to do it in order to fight the fight, they have to fight once they have your, your script in hand to get the movie made. And it's so easy for a deal to fall apart, and it's so easy for a producer to get discouraged that if you can make your script as good as possible so when they get it they're not going to get discouraged, then you've got a much, much better chance of your film getting produced. Right. Can you hear me? Yep. Good. Here I am. Well, here's the thing. We say uh, that... It has to be a dynamite script. A good script will not make the movie you expect. It won't make a great movie. Uh, so it's got to be dynamite. It has to be something really special about it. And people don't understand that. But when you look at uh, the numbers, we only make about 400 films a year from what the, the numbers I've seen. Right. 
And I hear that there are 50,000 screenplays a year that are listed in the Writers Guild. Do you think that's possible? Well, there, um, there are a lot of people in the Writers Guild. There are far more people now in the Writers Guild than uh, when I started. And when they register tens of thousands of creative material from writers, but that's not just a screenplay. That's synopses, outlines, ideas, treatments, and finished scripts. So I don't think they're registering 50,000 finished scripts, but certainly they could be registering tens of thousands of treatments and scripts and ideas. But it, there's a lot of people out there that think they've got the great idea, and it's, it has to be really, really great. Yes, there is so much. The point is there's so much already written that you can choose from that mm-hmm. when people say, uh, I want to make a movie, I'm going to write my own script, I don't think they realize that there are standards in Hollywood there's formats. There's certain things that have to be done uh, to make a good screenplay, right? Absolutely. And again, there, when someone sits down to read your script, they are wearing two hats at the same time because they've got a stack of screenplays they have to finish over the weekend or by tomorrow morning. One of the hats that they wear is the one that says, you know, I hope this is terrible and I can stop reading this and then I can get <laughs> on to the next one in my pile of scripts. But the other hat that they also are wearing is the one that should give you hope, which is everybody picks up a script and they hope it's going to be wonderfully fabulous because they want that they want to find one that's going to you know make their career or make them a lot of money or get them to the next step on their game board, and so they want it to be fabulous so they can do something with it. But if it isn't fabulous and you disappoint them, they're not going to finish reading it. And so it, it has to be really, really good. But like if your format is off or the page length is wrong, I mean now scripts are being read um, in iPads on PDF, but when I started and until actually very recently, they were all paper copies. And the first thing the producer would do when they picked up your script was they would hold it in their hand, they'd flip to the back to see how many pages it was, and the number then was 120. Now it's like 110, 115 at the most. And if you've got a shorter script than that, often that's good. But if it, when I started, when it was over, if it was over 120 pages, they knew you didn't know what you were doing, and they wouldn't read it. Oh my gosh! And this yes. was, this is even sillier. And this is in my book. And this is a rule that doesn't matter anymore. But the idea behind it, the diff, degree of difficulty matters. Is when scripts were in with pay, in paper, they would they would buy paper that already had three holes punched in it. You'd buy three-hole punch paper, and then you would put a, hard, a, a cardstock cover on the front, a cardstock cover on the back, and the three holes in the, in the cardstock cover. But it only took two brads to hold that script together securely, and if you're sending out 100 screenplays to people, then the assistant's going to go crazy if they have to put three brads in each one. So the rule became two brads because that would work. Then the secondary rule, the scary one was, if a producer got a script that had three brads in it, they knew you didn't know what you were doing. <laughs> and I talked to a producer um, early on when I was writing the book, and he said, yeah, that's a stupid rule. That's a really stupid rule, but when I see one with three brads, I don't read it. Yes. So there, there are things that people who are in the business know that people who are not in the business don't know. And uh, you put that very carefully in the introduction. So tell us what you heard the Hollywood agents say about reading scripts. Well, one of them said to me, he said, if I read to the first typo. Yeah. 
He said, you know, if there's a word misspelled, it means that the person who's writing this doesn't care enough to get it right. And they don't want to, you to hand them a script and say, you know, I don't really care about this. I didn't really take much time to do it. But it's really great. You're going to love it and want to make it. That's never going to happen. So typos are to be avoided. And I wear glasses when I drive. And so the fact that I wear glasses when I drive means i got to do that. Well, if you're terrible at proofreading, and people are, I'm really good at it, but I have friends who can't proofread at all. So you find someone who can proofread it and make sure when it goes out, it's perfect. Just because you can't proofread doesn't mean you can't find someone who can because it has to go out as good as you can possibly make it. Because they're going to, yes. yeah, like if it's a typo, they're going to, well, I mean, they're going to maybe stop at one typo. If you've got four or five in the first 20 pages, they're going to, this person doesn't care. Yes. And I heard exactly a guy say right. he was not an agent, he was a writer, but he said, he said, if you don't have time, because people are always asking him to read scripts because he was very successful, he said, if you don't have time to get it right, I don't have time to read it. Exactly. Well, uh, I also loved what you said in the book uh, that the most important single lesson in all of screenwriting is in the story of the two guys in line to buy tickets for the movie Finding Forrester. Tell me that, about yeah, that. that. I'm so glad you saw that. That that actually happened to me. I was standing in line to buy tickets to see Finding Forrester in a movie theater, and there were two guys standing in front of me. And one guy said, what's this movie about? And his friend said, Sean Connery. I thought, oh, that's why we're here. It's not about this guy who's doing this and it's a bad woman doing that. It's about who's the actor. And so yes. one of the things you're writing when you sit down to write is two words is you're writing actor bait. You want something that's going to get an actor to attach because since the it's the dawn of silent movies. Everybody has been interested in the actors and the actresses. That's who is interesting to them, not who wrote it, for heaven's sakes, not so much who directed, but who's the talent, who's the star. And that's what people are interested in. And so you've got to write something that's got a character in it that's going to attract someone of Sean Connery's level. Or if you're not making a movie that needs a Sean Connery, you're making a movie that needs somebody in it that's really good. It's very, very important that you write the best possible roles you can, especially if you don't have much money. Because if you write something that's fantastic, you might get an actor to either work for you for not much money or work for free if it's your first film and you've got a low-budget movie. They're not going to work for free if that role is not fantastic. And so what's this movie about? Sean Connery, that's a very, very good lesson. Even if you're not going to go and try to get Sean Connery in your movie, which you can't anymore, but 10 years ago you could, but it doesn't matter. It's still the actor that you're writing for. Yes, that's very good. <clears throat> well, let's start uh, with Act 1 and go into some structure uh, scenes and some dialogue because these are major mistakes that I notice when I start reading a script. So this is what you want to fix because these things could cause people to stop reading. Oh, absolutely. I mean, dialogue is critically important um you the reason is is because you can see it so quickly on the page if you don't separate out the dialogue um from one person's um one actor one character to the other 
you really got a problem. Another problem with dialogue is too much of it. I mean, I see this all the time. Is because it's easy to write dialogue. You just keep writing and writing and writing, and you don't go through your work and cut it and trim it. Less, 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 less dialogue. Back to Sean Connery. A friend of mine directed Sean Connery in a movie some years ago, and he said Sean Connery spent a lot of time with the script and a pen marking out dialogue that he didn't want to say. Not because he was he, – I mean, you think, oh, the actor's going to want to talk more. No, he wanted to act more and talk yes. less. And so the first thing about dialogue you see is there's way too much. I mean, when Chaplin and Keaton were making movies, when they silent movies, they had a contest between the two of them is who could make the movie with the fewest title cards. In other words, you're making a silent movie, but every now and then you'd have to have a title card, which is essentially dialogue, to explain something that was not able to tell in the story visually. And so Keaton and Chaplin had this contest of who would have the fewest title cards, and Keaton always won. He was a much wow. better visual storyteller. And writers today, all their movies, not all of them, I'm sure, but a lot of their movies are on YouTube. You can watch silent films and learn a lot. Um, you need to make sure that you've taken any dialogue that you can rewrite and have a character do that thing, whatever it is they're saying. In other words, we learn by what they do as opposed to what they're telling us. It's much more visual. It is a much more emotional experience to see someone do something, take action, than have them say something. And I know this for certain because a couple of years ago at the school where I used to teach, we showed Ferris Bueller's Day Off in a theater with 250 people. And it is the 30th anniversary of that film. And a lot of people had seen it, but almost none had seen it in a theater, in a crowded mm-hmm. theater with a comedy. It's an amazing place to be. So I was watching the movie, and I'd seen it 10 or 15 times, but I hadn't seen it in a theater in 30 years. And I began to notice 10 minutes into the movie that the laughs from a funny line of dialogue were really good laughs. But the laugh from someone doing something, where they took an action, they did something, physical humor, the laugh was much more profound. And I thought, oh, is this really right? And I watched the movie, the whole rest of the movie, just cataloging that in my head, how much better the laughs were when it was from action as opposed to dialogue. And so that really made me understand how important it is to get rid of dialogue if you possibly can. Uh, one other thing um, is I think everyone needs to read their script out loud. Final Draft, um, the screenwriting software, will read it out loud for you, uh, which is great. It's not perfect, but it's better than reading that out loud to yourself. And then the other thing you should do to get your dialogue best, as best it possibly can be, is have a table read with really good actors so you can hear it and then ask them how they felt about it. So those are my thoughts on dialogue. Oh, this is wonderful. That's very important. When you talk about um, the visualization with acting and comedy, you have to think about Lucille Ball. Everybody's seen her. And uh, there wasn't always a lot of dialogue, particularly no, when she no. was in that that vat when uh, out in uh, when she was stomping grapes in that vat. There was very little dialogue there, right? Absolutely. The one that I liked is the scene where she's got the cakes on the conveyor belt, and it's just physical <laughs> action. And she would she would do things, and it was funny. She didn't just look at the camera and say funny dialogue. She was putting them everywhere. She was eating them. It was hysterical. Right, yeah. So, 
Yeah. Oh, thank you for bringing that up. But, uh, but when you talk about actors' choices, I still remember, and I think it was the FBI story, whatever, it was when Sean Connery uh, was a cop. He had been busted from detective down to a street cop, mm-hmm. and he was talking to the head of the FBI, and he took his nightstick and put it on his chest, the other guy's chest, and the way he laid it on there you saw that Connery was a brilliant man. He carried knowledge and information, and he was sort of hiding it there as the local cop on the beat. Mm-hmm. But he was, the, he was the master, and you could see it in his body movements more than in his dialogue. Yeah, they actors like to act, and one of the things I tell my students is, can you take this line of dialogue, cut it, and turn it into a physical action because your script will be better. Lose the dialogue, turn it into action, and you're in much better shape. The story will still be there. I mean, obviously you have to have dialogue to get things across and to have people say what they need to say, but often you can take it out and let the actor just do it. Like if it's a, if you say, you know, if the, do, let the actor do it with a look. And if you write it correctly, we're going to be able to see that on the page, even with no dialogue. Exactly. Well done. Yes, I love it when actors tell us stories. And sometimes you have to go back. Well, thank God now that we have streaming, we can go back and rewind um, because Prince of the City, I couldn't tell exactly what was happening until the very end. And then he smiled at the mm-hmm. very end when the guy walked out of the class. <clears throat> when you look at it, at the very last second, there's a little smile on mm-hmm. his face, meaning there you'll find out, right? I'm right, and you'll learn. I think that's what Everybody Absolutely. can decide you what he to, meant, right? You, yeah, and that's a great example of carrying the story in the visual. I mean, I was that's I, the first time this ever happened to me. I was 12 years old, and I was in Italy, and they were we were watching a movie. It was then at the time they shined them on the side of a building, and everyone was watching the movie. I spoke no Italian. This was an American cop movie with Burt Lancaster that had been dubbed into Italian, so I didn't understand any of the dialogue at all. But the people who were with me, who were grown-ups, kept leaning over and asked me what was going on because they were <laughs> – and I had only seen the visuals, and I was able to tell them what was happening in the story just from the, the images, which was great. I got it. That's wonderful, and that's the way it should be, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, Okay. Well, I'll tell you, this is one of the most concise books on screenplay mistakes that I've ever seen. So you've done a great job of outlining the problems uh, because some writers really don't have any idea why their, their screenplays are coming back to them. And you've taken a lot of time to do this. So mm-hmm. um, I think that it will allow people to immediately focus on important issues that are often overlooked but are paramount problems for acceptance. So let's go over some highlights of Act 2 in your book, Your Screenplay Sucks. Act 2 is called Physical Writing. Um, The first part is about story and character and that kind of thing. In the middle is something I call physical writing. And one one of the biggest mistakes that people make that is something I harped on a lot is they don't take the time to tighten their prose. They don't take the time to massage their sentences. 
Um, and this, the reason for this is because I said earlier, what you want the reader to do is read your script until you get to, to get to the very end. If they don't get to the very end of your story, eh, you got a problem. And when they pick up your script and they look at page one, they're going to read page one, they're going to read page two, but they can't tell at page one or page two if you understand character or if you understand structure. They know none of that. They don't know if you know what it takes to have a good act break, but they can tell for certain if you can't write a clear, clean, concise sentence. And the, I tell my students, and it always upsets them, but oh well, is I said, I don't want to read your stuff. I'm not interested in reading your screenplay, but the school pays me a lot of money to read your script, and I'm going to read it, and I'm going to do a really good job giving you notes, but I don't want to read it. And that same is true for a producer. They're happy to put it down, so you can't make them nervous. And so if you're not, if you can't give them really well-written sentences so they can pick up your script and look at page one and feel like, oh, this person, she really knows what she's doing. Because the prose is good and the dialogue is good and there's not too much of it. The thing is physically well-written. That's a pro- that You're going to have a problem if they don't feel that way. You've got to make them comfortable so they can keep going. So that's one thing is not taking time to tighten up the prose. Um, I think people waste a lot of time getting the story started. I asked a, um, an agent at CAA a couple of years ago, what's the biggest problem with script? She said, people putting backstory in Act 1. There's just too <laughs> much setup in Act 1. And people think, again, beginning writers, if they think, oh, I need to explain all this stuff. Well, actually, no, you don't have to explain all of it. You just get the story rolling, and then we'll be fine. Um, I mean, often when I'll get into deep into somebody's act one, like page 17 or 20 of a client's script, and I'll take my red pen and write above a scene, fade in, colon, because that's where their story starts, and you can feel it when it's the right place. They had all this stuff that they had set up that they'd written because they thought it was important, and my suggestion is take your script, mark that stuff with a highlighter that's like really, really important, like the four things in your first 17 pages or 22 pages that you have to keep, and then sprinkle that in in your new Act 1 um, because you just want the crucial information that we have to know, and then you get rid of it and put that in the new Act 1. And speaking of Acts, my other big, big problem that I see all the time is Act breaks that are too small. Um, your you know your end of Act One, the midpoint, end of Act Two, is they just they need to be visible from the moon. They really need <laughs> to change because what happens is, is people will say it's like I'll read it, I'll read, it, and I have my clients mark here's the act break, here's the second mm-hmm. act break, and I'll read it. And I'll go, you think this is an act break? This is just like another thing that happened. It's not that's not an act break. It's just another thing that happens. It's something that has to change the life of the hero in a profound and gigantic way, as I said, that can be seen from the moon. And my recommendation to everybody is see the movie Paddington Two. It is oh. fabulous. And it's the best example I've seen in recent years of act breaks that are really big and really change that story in a profound direction. The end of Act 1 and especially the end of Act 2 in Paddington 2 are mind-blowingly giant events. And that's what you need is an act break that is a really huge, important event that turns the story in a very different direction than where it used to be. So Paddington 2, yay raw. Okay, good. I'll, I'll watch that. Thank you very much. Um, 
I like it when I know that this is the top of Act 2. I can feel it coming. You know, it's energy building and building. And uh, then I always say, this is the top of the second act. We're there. And I know it affects everybody that's watching films with me. But I like to feel that because by then your tension is built up and everything is getting ready to explode. You can feel Mm -hmm. it, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, Absolutely. I, I mean, you, you want it to feel they need to be you know, tense all the time, and then it just needs yes. to get tighter and tighter and tighter like a really good soccer game. It's getting more <laughs> and more and more tense, and then finally when somebody scores, the place explodes. Yes, yes. Tarantino does that to me. Mm-hmm, I can't mm-hmm. breathe sometimes in his scenes. You stop breathing, you get so intense. <laughs> yeah, he, whoa, he can really write. Yeah. Well, now, tell us where people can buy your brilliant book, Your your Screenplay Sucks. You can buy it pretty much anywhere books are sold. I have friends around the world. Every now and then they'll be in a bookstore, and I'll get an email from Australia and say, here's your book in a bookstore. I got one from a friend two days ago just went to Los Angeles, and she showed a a picture of my book. In a bookstore. So bookstores have them. You can get them from MWP.com, which is our publisher, and then Amazon's got it. So it's pretty easy to find. Your screenplay sucks. It's an easy title to remember, that's for sure. Yeah, that is for sure. Great. Well, you know, From the Heart is a fiscal sponsor for a lot of future filmmakers who are raising mm-hmm. money. Uh, and it seems to me that these, a lot of the emerging film writers want you to sign an NDA that no one on the planet would sign. It's like if you even breathe too hard, we're coming after you. Uh, usually they say you can't, uh, well, the restrictions are just impossible. So... I mean, we. I can't sign those because it would mean often that I can't even discuss film funding with someone else. Right. So how do you handle that part of it? It's sort of like a paranoia. Uh, paranoia. It's exactly so like afraid. paranoia because it is paranoia. Uh, me, if someone asked me to sign an NDA, I'll go, oh, this is great. I don't have to read this script. <laughs> I got. I can go down to the next one in the pile. Thank you so much. Um, here's the problem. It's is first of all, my experience is almost never do they steal your idea. If they if you've got a great idea and can't write, they're going to pay you money to have your idea, and then they can give it to somebody who can write. So you made some money, so that's okay. They're generally not going to steal your stuff. That's my impression. Um, but what they are going to do is, I mean, if you meet them and you talk to them and they want to read your stuff, and you if they get a whiff of either A, crazy, or B, paranoia, a big steel gate drops down, and you will never get them on the phone again. That will be the end of that contact. I mean, what you don't want to be is paranoid. You can be paranoid, actually, because if you are, there's nothing you can do about it, but you don't want anybody to know. And asking somebody to sign an NDA is just absolute. That just screams, I'm paranoid, don't have anything to do with me. It's like long ago, my grandfather told me, he said, if a woman says to you, I'm trouble, don't go out with her. Because when she destroys you later, she will say to you, remember, I told you. And so that's the thing with an NDA. If somebody asks you to sign an NDA, you know they're going to be a problem later, and you're going to run for the hills. That's my thinking on NDA. Yes. 
Yes, I totally agree. All right. Well, I don't know how to say all that nicely. I just have to say I can't. Uh, I can't do it. But uh, this, I'm so glad to hear you uh, understand and you agree with me because uh, it makes you not want to deal with that person. Exactly. And that's, that's and problem. that's the one thing you don't want to have someone feel is I don't want to deal with you because you're going to be difficult. That's not where what you want to be. You want to be as pleasant as you possibly can, as easy to work with as you possibly can, all those things. And flexible. This and business very flexible. It's got to be flexible. I mean, when you write a screenplay, you you have to take your ego and put it in the garbage disposal because you are opening yourself up for a lot of support. And guidance, or you want to call it criticism. Absolutely. Um, you, but you need it, or you wouldn't be asking for it. And you've got to get it to a place where it is a dynamite script, or you'll never make any money. Right. And you, and you, what you don't want to do, because I made this mistake early on, is I had a guy who wanted to make one of my movies, my one of my first scripts, and I said, "Oh, and I want to direct it." Oh. <laughs> that went away. I still own that script. Right. But no one's ever made it. It was a big, mis- it was a gigantic mistake because I was young and stupid. And uh, yeah, when someone wants to make your script, they want you know Sally Smith to direct it. You say, oh, she's one of my favorites. You get, <laughs> right. You don't need to. You don't need to direct it. You need to get the check. Yes, and the credit, and go yeah, on with the absolutely life. right. So let's get into Act Three mm-hmm. uh, and share some of the things with us in this section. What okay. now? So the what now means after you've gotten it written, what are you going to do? What's what's next for you? And um, what now? There are all kinds. Of, there's a chapter in there. You think Hollywood will steal your idea? Um, yeah. So don't be that way. One of the things that I think is really important is people that are that don't understand. This is really important that you can write your way out of a hole. I've been writing long enough to know that when I my whatever I'm working on is terrible and it's not working, and I'm the worst writer in the history of the universe, that the, if all I have to do is keep sitting there, and finally I'll figure out the answer to the question. But it's horrible. It's depressing. It's awful. But I know I'm going to solve that problem. But if you've not written as many scripts as I have, you may not know that that's possible. And so you just sit there feeling bad without the hope or the knowledge that, hey, one day this will get better. And I always equate this to if you've ever been dumped by someone you loved, the very first time that happens, it just feels awful. It's the worst thing in the world. If you've ever been dumped a second time by someone that you love, well, it feels just as bad. But the second time you know it's survivable because you survived the first one. And that's what the writing your way out of a hole is. You have to have the knowledge, or if you don't have the knowledge, you have to have the confidence that I'm going to solve this problem. You will be able to if you don't give up. I think that's very, very important. Um, you don't want to fight notes. I think that's critically important. Is um, A friend of mine told me this story about William Goldman, who was a buddy of hers. And William Goldman, a buddy of his, said, hey, my son's written a script. Would you please give him notes? And William Goldman said, yeah, happy to. So they go out for coffee. He has the, the, the guy's script with him. He's reading his script. He's flipping through Act 1. He's giving this young writer notes on Act 1. Here are the problems I have with Act 1. And every single thing that William Goldman, you know, at the time the greatest living American screenwriter, 
every single thing he said to this young writer, the guy argued with him ah. and said he refuted the note and said blah, blah, blah. And so finally William Goldman, then, after he finished giving him the notes on Act One, he closed the script. He slid it across the table to the guy, and he said, and the rest of it is fine. <laughs> That's it. I'm true. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I understand that. And uh, I understand that you work for uh, filmmakers and that you give notes on books. So tell us about that. Yes. Uh, notes on books, notes on screenplays, notes on rough cuts of films. Um, you can go to my website, yourscreenplaysucks.com, and it tells all about that. I've been doing it a long time, and I really like doing it um, because I'm good at it and people's scripts get better. So, that's yeah, that's one of the things I do. One of these days... In the next couple of months, I'm going to start teaching screenwriting classes online also. But right now, I'm providing script notes and consulting. Okay, so how do people reach you for that? Go to the website, yourscreenplaysucks.com, and uh, how to find me is there. And look at it and see what I offer, and if it's something you're interested in, let's get together. Okay, and uh, this uh, class starts in September. Uh, Sometime uh, in the fall, I've got to get it lined up. I don't know when it'll be yet, but it'll be on the website once that's ready to go. Because as I said, you can do that on you can teach screenwriting successfully online. I had a a student a year or two ago when we were deep into COVID at the end of the semester. She said, you're the only teacher, because all my classes were three hours long. Um, she said, "You're the only teacher I've ever had that can stay, you know, keep us interested for three straight hours on <laughs> on, on Zoom." Yes. Well, what stage of writing? Uh, how how far along should they be when they take your class? Could they, if they just have an idea, can they start with you? Sure. Yeah. And if they've already completed the script, it's still it's beneficial. That- Oh, absolutely! Look, I've been I've been teaching. Whew, I started teaching thirty years ago, screenwriting and filmmaking, and um, so if you, the my process is is if you want me to give you script notes, you give me a script and I'll give you notes, and then the next layer is I'll give you different notes on the next draft of the script. But you got to do the first one first and the second one second. But the the online classes um, that'll be I can take someone who has a script or an idea, either one. Okay, this sounds wonderful. Thank you. Uh, because we uh, we are at a wonderful time in history right now with all the digital information. It's great for filmmakers, and they the need for product has never been greater. Right? Don't you agree? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I've got a friend who had put a lot of television on the air. We were talking last week, and he said when he had his first television show, it was during the big strike of long, long ago, and they had a meeting of all the showrunners for all the TV shows on television and all the one-hour um, shows. And they went, they met in a hotel suite in Los Angeles. That's not that many people. And when they did it recently, they had to have three meetings of like several hundred people per meeting in order to get through all the showrunners on on television now. So there's a lot more product than there used to be. And they all have to have writers. And they all have to have good stories. Yes, exactly. That's what it's all about. Good stories, well-written, and and then actors, the proper actors attached. 
and you could uh, you can be uh, an overnight hero with something like uh, Yellowstone. I mean, that I was a fan of his writing mm-hmm. from um, Come Hell or High Water and uh, Wind River, and then he just bl- blossomed with Yellowstone. Paramount oh, it, really supported him. It's so good. It's so good. Um, yeah, he's so talented. Um, um, he was a guest in my class, um, and he he writes with no outline, which is really interesting. What? Um, he he just starts writing and he writes, and um, oh my gosh, and then he fixes it later. But he just he feels like you get a lot of energy if you write with no outline. I've written the script that I, the script that I wrote that um, that. Uh, didn't get made that I said I insisted on producing, like I mean directing, like an idiot. Um, that I wrote with no outline, and it's a great way to do it. But you got to be able to, you know, invest the time um, to uh, fix it. But it gives you a lot of energy, that's for sure. Yes. Well, now they've given him a whole slate, five films at Paramount. Yeah, he's he's Taylor's. He's very, very, very good. Yeah. And he's also an actor and everything else, and yeah. uh, it's uh, great to see someone succeed like that. Mm-hmm. And well, it all started. Yeah, it started with stories, with good mm-hmm. stories, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, that's he, where you come in. I, you can't do it without a good story. You can start with a character first and make a story. You can start with a story, and make a character. How you get there really. Your method is your method. I think it's very important that people understand that. How you arrive at fade out and then rewriting and getting the script to where it's as good as it could possibly be, however you get the words on the page, is just fine. Um, there's a, speaking of Sean Connery, again, there's a movie called Playing by Heart. And uh, the guy that wrote that movie, he doesn't like to write. And so he would walk up and down on the beach all day, every day, thinking about the movie and thinking about the characters in the story. And then he would, and then finally, when he was done walking up and down the beach for a couple of months, thinking about the story and the characters, he came inside and blasted that script out. And I think it was eight days. So that's Whoa. a different method than than other people use, but that's what worked for him. And so anybody needs to understand that whatever way you get the words on the page, if that works for you, that's the right way. Yes. That's great. Oh, you've been so kind, William, to share all this knowledge and information with us. So I just want everyone to know your website one more time is the name of your book, Your Screenplay Sucks, all one word, dot com. And you have a Twitter account, which is at ProFakers, P-R-O-F-A-K-E-R-S. That's correct. The other way to say it was at ProfAkers. Profakers, P-R-O-F-A-K-E-R-S. Oh, got it. Professor Akers, wonderful. Got it. Well, thank you very much. We have learned a lot today, and I hope that uh, you do quite well with this book because you certainly are saving a lot of us who uh, are involved in scripts a a lot of reading that we don't want to do. Yes, I've had Thank producers hand, hand my book to their writers and say, read this and then fix your script. Really? Yep. That's exactly right. Okay. Well, lots of good luck to you. And thank, thank you, you so Claire. much. 
You're so welcome. We're really behind you. This is a great book, and I'm looking forward to your class. I hope you'll email me when you decide to start your class, and I'll put it on our website because Thank I know Thank you so much. I will let it. you know. Okay. Take care and have a good weekend. Thank you, William. Thank you, All Claire. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Okay. Be well, everyone. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Bye. Welcome. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone. <laughs>